You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And Herds, we have finally made it. We have finally escaped the clutches of Western civilization. Oh, wow. And journeyed our way over to Shanghai for Cheng Shao King's Sherlock in Shanghai. What a shiz on that title. It's amazing. Are, are you saying that we've made our own journey to the east? Is that what you're saying? I think, I think, yeah, that, that's a, a fair statement to make. I think we're on the same level as a historically significant, you know, <laughs> piece of fiction literature. You know, that makes sense to me. No, I, <laughs> I, I've actually, uh, I've really enjoyed reading these so far. We're only up to the end of the, the third story currently, uh, the end of The Odd Tenant, which is, I don't know how else you title that story. That's all it was about. It's about an odd tenant, nothing else. It was great. Uh, but I have really enjoyed getting to uh, dive into a completely different kind of perspective, different writing style. Yeah, so this was early 20th century detective fiction by Cheng Xiaoqing, who basically helped bring Western detective fiction to Eastern culture. Our detective in this one, Ho Sang, and his uh, and his budding accomplice Bao Lang, uh, very explicitly just Sherlock Holmes and John Watson. Yeah, the influence is worn completely on the sleeve, and there's no shame in it. It's just about the joy of bringing this new style of writing of art to China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very much an attempt of, of localization, really, mm. uh, which is why I find it so fascinating. Um, the preface that has actually been written out uh, to, to accompany this book is, I believe, written by Timothy C. Wong, who's the translator of this title. Uh, and they did a really fantastic job outlining the historical context of this book. And boy, is it big. Uh, it talks about how there are a lot of kind of con- contemporaries uh, of Chang who would write very straightforwardly and very literally to criticize, you know, what was wrong with, with Chinese society. But the argument that Timothy makes and that Cheng fulfills here is that uh, through the writing of murder mysteries that are designed by nature to unveil the truth that you didn't think you needed to see, he does it in such a such a tactful way that's so much more effective than just saying like you guys need to change. You kind of you kind of dumb sometimes. Like it's it's brilliant. I love yeah. I love it. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that we've discussed at length on this show is how a lot of crime and detective fiction writers use the juxtaposition between the horrors of crime and gritty realities yeah. of the criminal underworld and then the kind of progressive social values that lean more on human rights and freedoms. Sure. So several of the stories through these uh, through this collection, including the first two, are uh, about how women are trapped in relationships and how the stock market is yep. bad for people's oh mental health. The way that the second story ends, our, our Sherlock stand-in literally says, like, did you know that people kill themselves because of the stock market? Boy, that's tragic. If only we lived in a society that didn't have such a terrible, horrible, like, stock market that would fluctuate so horribly. Maybe that was the thing. Listen, it's great. It's not like it's some horrifying Marxist (laughs) wet dream going through this novel. I know, but- It it very aptly goes through and points out like, hey, these are the problems and this is the horrors that it leads to. These are the problems. And it just integrates so well. Mm -hmm. If anything, I honestly preferred the way that this story tackled social issues to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. 
because Conan Doyle's social issues were things like making sure that the British have the right to control yes. those yes. savages. <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle has different priorities, let's say, and they're not always good. Um, I also think that since we're since we're already into the comparisons here, I think that Arthur Conan Doyle's stories are much more fantasy focused. Mm. One of the issues that we actually saw when we covered Sign of the Four uh, is that he will spend the first half of the story having a murder mystery, and then the second half of the story having like a a fantasy adventure for some reason in Utah yeah. or like in the Indias for, for basically no reason. The translator, as I've mentioned, Timothy uh, Timothy C. Wong has done a brilliant job of uh, of translating this story over and of making everything very understandable. But there are some parts that just don't seem to have translated properly. Yeah. One, th- one in particular that stood out to me was there is a riddle in the first story and the mystery is basically about why is there a shoe in this woman's room who has died? And uh, you, could, you could maybe try and figure out what the motive might be of a woman dying with a man's shoe in her room. And the the bumbling policeman uh, Fan Tong says, "Oh, I've got a riddle for you. It's it's a three times three equals nine letter word, and you'll never guess what it is. And it's like love, marriage, divorce, and his solution is cuckoldry. Yeah, like I don't think I've ever heard a real person like say that to me to my face ever. Like it's just because <laughs> you have too much Zoomer energy, Ben. Obviously, I'm too Zoomer. <laughs> but the, the the thing I will say, and I mean this in a descriptive way rather than a qualitative way, mm-hmm. is that this book is a very faithful translation for sure which means that it carries across a lot of the literal meaning of what was in the initial translation but Mm -hmm. fails to carry across some of the elegances of the writing fails to carry across some of the more clever devices yeah it's the kind of things that you don't really notice when you're reading but add to it like when you're reading you know something about a snake and it starts to sound a little sibilant because there's so many you know you you get the the sound of something coming through based on the words that are on the page. Those sorts of details are the kind of things that are lost in very faithful translations between languages. And I don't mean to sit here and say that it's better or worse one way or the other. It's just that I think it's good to go in understanding what you're getting into so that you know, okay, it's going to be a bit clunky, but it also means I can pick apart maybe a bit of the societal differences in the way that our language is constructed. Well, that's exactly it, right? That's why I won't I won't damn you, uh, Mr. Wong, for these sort of strange translation choices because at the end of the day, this is a Chinese version of a British story and to keep those those discrepancies in the text is in some ways actually very faithful to that idea. Mm. Um, and I actually really, I really appreciate that. So yeah, I will say that the the few moments where Tim does inject a bit of flavor to it, oh my goodness, are just yes. excellent. The the moment where they just start punning on Fan in Fan Tong's name, fanatical fantasy, excellent. Yeah, it's so yeah, good. Yeah. Um, and and like you know, even though those are kind of simple examples and they're not necessarily the highlights of high English <laughs> writing, no. they, they're kind of special because they stand out amongst some of the other clunkier moments of the writing here, and that's that's fun. You know, that's one of the joys of reading translated work is like appreciating the idiosyncrasies of it. It seems like this was a, a bit of a passion project by by Mr. Wong here, yeah, um, to bring across something that he thought had historical relevancy, right? Because I, there's a note in the preface that a lot of other of his contemporaries of those people writing, you know, less fiction, more fact um, and other fictional writers over in China around this time have been forgotten. And this is kind of his effort to, to bring Cheng 
Chow King into the forefront, into the limelight, um, so mm. that we can we can remember him. The entire point of these stories, from Cheng's perspective, even if it's not at the forefront of his mind at all times, is to teach a lesson. Which me personally, I love that. It's almost like a Saturday kids cartoon. Yeah, as long as it contains the spirit of of the Sherlock Holmes books that he's that he's read, um, and it teaches that lesson well. That's all that matters, and I think that's. Really admirable, honestly. Yeah, I mean, that's so much the same reason that we loved Carol Chapek's work. Uh, Tales from Two Pockets, which we covered last year on the show, and you can check out on the podcast if you want, uh, went into very much similar kinds of storytelling, where it was a lot shorter stories involving a core moral lesson, a core experience, a core emotion. Yeah. It, it's kind of nice to see, you know, Eastern comparisons to similar styles of writing. It's one of the reasons I chose this collection rather than one of his longer works. Because I just think that the way that it is able to get those morals across is so, it's so brilliant. I mean, I think that in general, uh, I I prefer these sort of short collections of stories. Mm. As you say, Carol Chapik's work and now Chen Chao Chao King's work and very kind of constrained ideas that that just just pop. Yeah. I think are really fantastic, honestly. I think that is a great place to leave this part of the discussion. We will be back with more on Cheng Shao King's Sherlock in Shanghai, translated by Timothy C. Wong. We are covering the first three stories in the collection today. We're excited to get into the mystery elements of them coming up at the end of the show on Death of the Reader. You are listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. And on the line right now, I am joined by Paul F. Verhoeven, writer of Loose Units and Electric Blue, the second of which has just come out, as well as a a storied individual in Australian media. <laughs> it's, it's a bit weird admitting that I'm, I'm, I may be a young person, but... And also maybe terrifying for you, but I grew up listening to Nerdy by Nature yes. as one of the shows when I was going to study. Yes! And... You know, you being excited about weird, geeky things is the kind of thing that's gotten me into making shows like this. So it's so good to chat with you, Paul. That's so sweet. I love it. I um, I really miss being on radio once a week, bothering people with my inane weirdness. I I really, really, (laughs) I really appreciate that. I um, it's funny having made a career out of just doing stuff about stuff I like. Yeah. And it's really odd to kind of, because I, I didn't want to write about my dad's crime stuff when I, that wasn't what I grew up wanting to do, but I did want to mm-hmm. write books. And it's, it's I, I threw so many things at the wall. I've tried so many different random careers and it's weird to be like 30, 30 ugh, 37 and have this whole strange new chapter of my life opened up where, you know, twice a week I'm working with my dad, which is, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> but what's weird is technically I'm the person who started this family business and it's running backwards in time you know normally it's the father who hands the son the thing so now i've like roped my dad into stuff but yeah it's uh hang on that's a long time ago the triple j stuff that's like oh my god i'm so old uh all right cool i'm just having an existential crisis no anyway it's lovely to be here um and yeah that's uh that was a was a beautiful chapter of my life yeah now the reason i brought you on today Mm. uh our first episode discussing Cheng Xiaoqing's Sherlock in Shanghai. And this is going to be a bit of a weird one for our audience. But you recently wrote a piece about uh, about Star Trek, about Dixon Hill. Mm, and yes. it blew my mind because about two days before you did, I was sitting down with my co-host Herds and explaining to him that Dixon Hill and Jean-Luc Picard is the sci-fi equivalent of Cheng Xiaoqing to real world China. 
because he was basically, you know, out of his depth as all of this Western detective fiction started to pour into his world. Yeah. Got used to it, kind of slipped into it and reluctantly started to enjoy it, then started to tell his own stories. And then later in life, when we start to look at Star Trek Picard, the series kind of fell out of love a bit with the community that had originally embraced him and, you know, began to adapt to the new stylings. And I was just thinking to myself that the the parallels between the fan fiction-ish style of Dixon Hill and Jean-Luc Picard and the retellings of Western detective fiction that Cheng Xiaoqing did in his own days are are such amazing parallels. And the thing I wanted to ask you, Paul... Mm. Was, you know, when we look at fan fiction, I feel like it has a bit of a bad rap these days because the internet has opened the floodgates to some lesser quality fan fictions. But given that so much of uh, storytelling is driven by inspiration, why is it important that we have these loves and these passions for the things we grew up on? Christ. Yeah, I've kind of built my whole career off the off the somewhat weird premise that everyone is deeply obsessed with something, right? Like I've always believed that someone, even the most hardened meth head will have something that makes them squee in the corner of their rooms. Everyone's got a fandom. Everyone's got stuff they care about on that level. As far as Picard and Dixon Hill goes, I mean, first of all, just sidebar, I really think um, Michael Chabon went a bit too hard on Picard's apparent wrongdoing in the events of Picard. I mean, <laughs> I, I really think the universe needs to give the guy a break. Like he did so mm-hmm. much good and the series was just like, everyone was mad at the guy. I know. <laughs> but generally speaking now, it's a lot more uh, acceptable to like what you like and to wear your heart in your sleeve. I think it's really um, important to realize that role models don't have to be real people. Um, you can draw life lessons from completely fictional characters. I mean, the amount of life lessons I inherited from Doctor Who is just, it's unhealthy. But the (laughs) fact is that we do kind of, you know, we build these Frankenstein's monsters of- um, Yeah of role models when it comes to things like you know for example you working with your father and i know and a lot of what i've seen about electric blue you said that it was a bit of a hurdle to get over going from being like dad stop telling me those stories about your work to embracing it you know how can you approach things in a way that makes it easier to break down those barriers and be open to the things you love or or could love i think it just comes down to the right person you know it like the notion of evangelism is something that is abhorrent, but the basic <laughs> idea behind it is you have a you have an idea that you want to, you know, you want you want to gestate in other people. And I used to think if you didn't like the good stuff, I'm doing the rabbit fingers here, then you were an idiot who needed to be educated. That point of view is repugnant, and I hate myself for thinking that way. It, you just like what you like. Don't get me wrong; I still privately think you're an idiot and you're wrong, but I, 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 I but like I wouldn't say that. Like I have friends who think Mad Max Fury Road is a terrible film. Um, I think they're terrible people. But the fact is, I think it comes down to who is trying to get you into the thing, and also what what version of the thing are they getting you into? You know, you can. That's the whole idea behind a mixtape. Can you just like whip up seven episodes of a show and? I'll just watch those and if I like that, I'm in, right? It's it's really nice to be able to have someone experience the stuff you like for the first time and actually enjoy it. 
And another important aspect of this is if they don't like the thing you like, please don't get angry. Coming to write these series of stories with your family and starting to explore crime. And I guess my experience with especially true crime stories and especially from cops is that truth is just stranger than fiction so much of the time. Mm. You know, how how is it as a writer coming to write a story and hearing true events that are weirder than the wildest ideas that you could come up with if you were just trying to make them up. You know, how do you, how do you condense that and put it on a page? It's really great. It's, it's sort of, um, because dad and I sat down and I took all these cases and I sort of told stories based on those true events. The cases themselves are incredibly strange because the cases that are really weird are the ones that aren't reported on. Mm. And if you're in emergency services and you deal with five horrific things a week and you're there for years, you're probably not going to remember everything that happened to you. Yeah. So part of the joy of Loose Units and Electric Blue was having dad remember things for the first time. It was like literally like a freshly sealed air mm. kind of sealed version of the of events. And then watching him sort of just unravel and tell these stories and then realize he'd let a genie out of a bottle. And then I would take that genie and cut him up and fillet it and cook it and get it ready for, for um, shipping out. With Electric Blue, the new book, which is like days old at this point, which is super stressful, um, <laughs> what I really wanted to do was I wanted to take dad's biggest, sketchiest cases and then run a B-plot right through the middle of dad and I trying to figure out why he in his 20s was like a – superhero Sherlock Holmes kind of cop guy and why I ended up as a, you know, like an artsy fop who didn't have any actual (laughs) practical skills and Uh wasn't heroic at all, right? So uh, as the book started to go on, this through line of of choice came into it. And so I started to try and get dad to uh, say – what he would have done differently in certain situations. And dad was just like, I don't know what you mean. And I'm like, well, what have you done things differently? He's like, yeah, but you can't, you can't think of it like that. So as a fun exercise, at the end of the book, I wrote a choose your own ending story, like into the book. And it's illustrated by me and the font changes. And it's like, literally it's a book inside a book. It's bizarre. Yeah. And we use the exact same font as um, Steve Jackson's um, fighting fantasy game books, which I was like obsessed with when I was a kid. So what I'm trying to say is that electric blue was a really nice way of, Yes, talking about cases that were stranger than fiction, but then also working in some strange fiction of my own and I think creating a kind of hybrid yeah. in the process. I mean, it reminds me of a discussion we had just last week with Robert Gott, who was talking about collective memory and kind of the idea that uh, when it when it comes to crime fiction and particularly mystery fiction, there's this inherent complexity in the fact that the author can just go back and choose a different culprit if they aren't satisfied with it and write the book differently. Yeah. You know, and what you've done is very much kind of the real world example of that. So I really, I really love that. And I'm personally looking super forward to my copy showing up. I've ordered it. Dude, is it here yet? I can't, I can't wait to hear what you think. Cause it is like, I took some chances with this book. Yeah. Like I'm holding it right now. And it is like a, it is a fat book. It it's is big. It's uh, it was a full, full on, full on thing. And I just thought, you know what? I've always wanted to write video games. I'm just going to gamify the book and see what they think. I don't even think I asked Penguin. And when I showed it to them, <laughs> God bless them. They were like, yeah, okay, let's take a punt. And bear in mind, this is the non-fiction wing yeah. of Penguin. To bring it back to the fandom question, rather than try and create different projects that let me explore different aspects of my fandom of like a myriad of things I like and have liked, I just decided to do it all at once. Hmm. Um, and that, that's what Electric Blue is. It is like a, it's, it's, it's everything in one book. I just threw everything in there because I just thought, what if, it, what if I never get to write another book again? What if the world is just incinerated and we're trading bottle caps for ammunition in a few years? Like, what <laughs> if, right? So I just thought, 
look, it's it's true crime. It's 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 all based on things that actually happened. It's a father son kind of exploratory emotional thing. And then it's got this thing at the end, which I, I guess technically counts as a spoiler. But what I've discovered is that when people go to bookstores and pick up a book, nine times out of ten they flick through it. Like like if you you know how people like if they blow their nose they look at it mm-hmm. they open the th- and they look at it like don't do that and that's <laughs> what I'm so I I guess what I'm saying is I was precious about the reveal but uh-huh. now the people are just gonna pick the book up anyway I just I thought I'd tell you and I thought you'd like that so well I'm yeah. I'm super looking forward to this Paul it has been an honor having you on Electric Blue is out now and we will have links up on the podcast if you're interested in grabbing yourself a copy. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Anytime. You are listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here. We are discussing Cheng Shao King's Sherlock in Shanghai. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we have embroiled ourselves deep in Eastern culture with Cheng Shaoqing's Sherlock in Shanghai, translated by Timothy C. Wong. We're talking about the first three stories in this collection today. The shoe, mm-hmm. yeah, the yeah. other photograph, and the odd tenant. Let's just dive into it. Uh, these mysteries are way too easy. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, they are, let's put it this way. I, I had solved 90% of the mystery within the first, I'd say, 10 pages mm-hmm. at the very mm-hmm. most. Uh, and it was really, I mean, it, it's like watching a Sherlock Holmes mystery, of course, where you're watching Sherlock run around swashbuckling trying to solve things. But <laughs> yep. the difference with this is that Sherlock doesn't lay out the mystery halfway through the book and then say, I've solved it. Now it's time to go catch the criminal. You get to the halfway point and he says, all right, I think I've solved it, but I'm going to check anyway because I'm a smart person who goes through like a logical process of solving mysteries. He is less overpowered than Sherlock and more human. Yeah. Though in some ways that it doesn't make any sense. Like- as I was saying before, the shoe mystery, we can't just say that the shoe means nothing because it's the title of the mystery. And it's the same with all three mysteries so far. And I assume it's going to continue like this. Who is the one person who would like see a shoe in the room and be like, all right, I guess my, my wife is having an affair because I see a shoe in her room. Husband, done. Easy. Like, <laughs> straightforward. I think that what this is a response to is the fact that Sherlock's conclusions are often just as flimsy as the police he is going against. Yes, yes, yes. And Mm -hmm. this story making more moral and human rights related espousals is justified in going through and saying uh, we need to check on the evidence anyway, even though it's sort of obvious because it's the right thing to do. And from a mystery perspective, I agree, it's a little clunky, it right? It the mystery. It's not mm-hmm. yeah. the best puzzle construction. But at the same time, I think that if we are looking at the best qualities of the story, it would be out of place to do otherwise. The thing about these, these stories is that they're supposed to illuminate problems with Chinese society and methods of thinking and how Chang wants us to, to learn from the West and like mm. bring bring both cultures together and we can like learn from each other. Like these are all things that he's he's pushing, yeah. right? He's pushing with his stories. And I think that all I'm saying is if you are going to these murder mysteries expecting a complicated murder that is difficult to solve, you are not going to get that. Oh, but, absolutely. But that's okay because you are getting insight into – Chinese society. At least as far as I understand, based on the preface to this book by Timothy C. Wong, it sounds like fiction brought the role of the private detective 
to China before the actual role, before yes, the uh, that's exactly the it. purpose of the police was expanded to include such things. That's exactly it. And so if we put the book into the context that the position of a detective, you know, the idea of a detective who goes around independently from the police solving crimes did not even exist in this country before this novel was made, there is no reason for us to expect there to be complicated murder mysteries because the shoe is the introduction of the murder mystery to thousands of people. Yeah. Like, this is their first exposure to to the concept. Um, and it's not just that some wacky guy decides, like, make a murder mystery. It's like, I'm going to... Cheng sits down. I'm going to introduce. I'm going to teach the concept of a detective to my audience. That's what these stories are. And in that, I think they're fantastic. Um, Yeah. Especially as he's still able to break away from the traditional idea that a detective must investigate a murder. Like, they're three very basic kind of premises to these novels. Um, That's fine. The the question I have about about, uh, one of these, though, is that when we're looking at the first story, The Shoe... We get to the conclusion, and it turns out that the shoe was just lobbed on to the balcony of this yes, young woman by yes. some young guy. And at the end of the story, they all agree that he should be punished for it? Yes. What? Well, that seems to be a Chinese value thing. Uh, that's not something that I would agree with. But yeah, it seems like they're like heckling. The heckling of this young woman is like, the in- it was the inciting incident, right? Like it was throwing the shoe up there made the husband see the shoe and be like, ah, I see you are having an affair because you don't love me anymore and I'm already under a lot of stress from work, so I guess I'll stab you. Like, And she literally doesn't know he's there, so she didn't. he didn't even confront her. He just said, well, I'm going to stab you before you have a chance to explain this shoe that's in your room. Yeah, it's and they're insane. like, the, the, yeah. the line is, that young punk, Shen Yixian, yes. deserves some serious punishment, but that's all a matter of law. What law? The guy is being a, indecent and an asshole, I mean, but... Let's <laughs> think, drunken misconduct I is guess, what we've got I there. Guess. But even then, I don't know what the serious punishment is. I hope it's not hanging. Like, I hope that that's not where this yeah, goes. Because, yeah. yeah, just some idiot was like, stop here, I'm going to throw a shoe at this girl I like. And that was it. That's it. That's the end of his story. And I guess he goes to jail now. The other thing I did want to talk about in terms of the mystery was the second story, uh, the other photograph. Oh, yeah? Which part of it? It's, it's all pretty insane. It, it is a pretty insane story, but I love I love the way that he constructs a nemesis for Hosang. Wang Zhisheng, I believe is his name. Just the way that they build up his cutting and his character through this story is so... He's so evil. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's cartoony. Like, you know, going back to what you were saying about it being the moral lessons of like a kid's cartoon show... I think that's totally the same for just the broader writing of the stories. Like it, it definitely is. It definitely is. It's very, it's very kind of simplistic in that way, which, which is interesting. They have the confrontation, and and Hussein says, "I know I have a photo of you taking a photo of my client, and so if you release the photo of my client, then I'll release the photo of you, and then you'll get in so much trouble." The the best part is that like they make the agreement. They're like, "Okay, fine. What if we just trade photographs, and then we can just put all this behind us, and then literally, it might even be the same." Same day, his client comes in in tears, like, he had a second photograph. Oh, no. And it's like, wait, he had a second one. Okay. <laughs> like, and he's trying to get me again. Like, it's just such a weird twist to have. Uh, and it leads to it leads to our nemesis here, Wang, 
uh, getting put in the hospital uh, and having a heart attack. So, you know, that's another... Yeah, that, that was a little weird. He gets <laughs> beat up by the guy that other person he tries to blackmail. Yeah, the other guy he, like, manipulates. Gets his, gets his comeuppance, you know. By having a heart attack in hospital. My favourite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really weird. I think that the... um, It, it is interesting, though, that the things that we kind of have the most trouble with, it, it, us Australians yes. reading this book, is the concept of justice. Because clearly our concept of justice compared to Chang's mm. is very different. Because if you think about it, that like the thug guy who was like manipulated by by Hosang's nemesis uh, was essentially praised. He was a good guy in the end. He was simple, but he was a good guy for going and beating up the bad guy. Yeah. But our, our young punk pretty boy from the from the first story, like, <laughs> which is worse, vigilante justice or throwing a shoe at someone? Yeah, right. Know? Like. It's it's a weird disconnect that I think we have because we're just we're not in that culture. You may have noticed we haven't discussed points this entire episode. I know. I'm scared. That is because I wanted to give you the in taste. I wanted to give you the definite article stories so that you could get over here and say, "Oh, this is all easy." And now your challenge will come in the next 2 weeks. I'll have to do some research. I'll look over the initial stories, learn how they're structured. And I'll, I'll see if I can solve. What, what am I solving for next week? So next week, Herds, we are going to be reading stories four through six from the collection, which is the examination paper on the Huangpu and the cat's eye. What you are going to do for me is you are going to read the all of the examination paper and cat's eye. And then you are going to read on the Huangpu up to part five and see if you can solve it there. Awesome. Let's give it a go. I'm sure that I will have... No issues. I think you'll enjoy getting to kind of pick apart the later mysteries in this collection because I believe they are ordered chronologically as to when he wrote them and seeing the improvement as the collection goes on will hopefully be a bit of an interesting experience for us. Yeah, I I know in the preface it was mentioned that there is going to be a Moriarty-type character introduced in the later later stories, Uh, so I'm really excited for that. Uh, (laughs) I'm looking forward to it, Flex. I'm looking forward to it. All right, you are listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. We will see you next week discussing stories four, five, and six from Sherlock in Shanghai by Cheng Xiaoqing, translated by Timothy C. Wong. Thank you so much for joining us here on 2SER 107.3. See you then.